Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Don't you know I'm a 2,000 man? And my kids, they just don't understand me at all. 1994, clueless Wall Street peon and on and off tennis coach. Turn of the century, rock star internet analyst, millionaire. 2003, settles securities fraud charges with the SEC, banned from Wall Street, then into the wilderness, but dives headlong into years of penitential writing for Slate, New York Magazine, and the Huffington Post, culminating in his book, The Wall Street Self-Defense Manual. 2007, found Silicon Alley Insider. His mug and byline are everywhere during the financial crisis. He gets ripped apart daily, but he keeps growing his newsroom. Grows it, grows it, grows it. The dissing continues. He keeps growing Business Insider. The dissing pipes down. And he sells Insider last month for $343 million. Henry Blodgett, why didn't you just go to J school? (laughs) First of all, thank you very much for having me, Robin. It's great to be here. And um, yes, that would have been a lot simpler. We sometimes have intern lunches where um, incredibly smart young folks are kind enough to ask me for career advice. And one of the things, the first things I tell them is just, well, don't look at my career. (laughs) It's not an example for anybody. Um, But then we plunge into it. So yes, J School would have been easier. So hold that thought and and thousands of others. We have Henry Blodgett for the hour. We're going to call this show The Six Lives of Henry II. Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, measuring the distance food travels from farm to fork in support of local farmers in our community. Elwood Thompson's Local Market, serving Richmond for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. Joining us from NPR's New York City studios is Henry Blodgett, CEO and founder of Business Insider. Finally, Henry, finally, you come on my show. You've been very kind and persistent. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been reading you for years, man, and I've always wanted to peel aside the layers and ask you, actually, the one question I want more than anything else to ask you is, what was that inflection point after all the Michigas with Spitzer and the SEC circa 2003 and 2004? I guess you turned to your wife or someone and said, I'm not going to be a shrinking wallflower. I'm going to double down on, on being in the public eye. I think that's right. There was definitely a period there where I thought my life was over professionally and was just horrified at what had happened, was totally humiliated and felt like I'd let millions of people down, not only the folks that I was working with, but the folks who had been kind enough to listen to me through the 1990s and and so forth. And I had really tried to do a good job all along and be very forthright. And it just was a disastrous outcome. And I... Um, thought basically I, I was doing something close to what I wanted to be doing. I like to write, I like to speak, I like to be out in in public. And I think that um, I decided r- relatively quickly in that period that I was going to devote the rest of my life to trying to earn back the trust that I had lost and also 
just do what I like doing, which is what I was doing before. And fortunately, I had been a journalist before I had gone to Wall Street, and I didn't know whether anybody in journalism would ever give me a platform to publish. But then Martha Stewart got in trouble, and I said, hmm, here's somebody who, whose situation I could I know something about. And I, I asked a friend who worked at The New Yorker, you know, is there anybody who would publish me? And she said, I know just the guy. And she referred me to Jacob Weisberg at Slate, mm. who's kind enough to hire me to cover the trial. And so that restarted my journalism career. But I think um, actually, yes. I think that was a meaningful body of work. As you know, that's that's when kind of Henry Blodgett came back into the public eye for me is these these really candid pieces you did for Slate and for New York Magazine. Lots of things like you're, you're hitting yourself for, look, I also lost a lot of money in this enormous speculative orgy of, of 1998 to 2001. But you're also telling us candidly the parenthetical things that a lot of veterans on Wall Street never bother to tell you, you know, keep costs low. It's all BS. This is the only way you're going to become a millionaire. Uh, inflation will maul you. I just remember reading it, and I, I had to double take and go back to the byline again. It's like, this is Henry Blodgett, you know, spilling the secret sauce uh, to individual investors. It was almost a real overt penance. There was almost like a self-flagellation to it. Well, I, I mean, it was certainly a process that I went through. I actually had to learn how to invest as an individual investor. I think one of the problems or challenges for analysts on Wall Street, especially in the late 1990s, is they really are there to serve about 100 to 200 institutional clients. And they are all, the clients are incredible experts in investing. You're going in and just, just talking about the details of companies and managers and, and so forth. And the 1990s investing got very democratized. Everybody was doing it in their part time. Analysts became celebrities. And you suddenly were speaking to people who had much less experience, had been much less trained in investing. And so, and I actually was not trained in how do you invest as an individual, which is very different than a mutual fund or hedge fund manager and so forth. I was good at talking to those folks and um, thinking about companies and stocks for in, in their context, but I had not had experience with investing in myself. So I had to learn from the ground up. And one of the things that I went through in that process, studying the academic work and mm. many other experts on it is that, yes, as you say, the, the smartest strategy for any individual who is not trying to entertain or challenge themselves by picking stocks is to buy index funds and keep the costs incredibly low and stick for the long term. That will give you the best return 80% of the time, which is a pretty good ratio for folks who aren't experts in the topic. And, and that became crystal clear. And when I figured that out, I felt like I ought to tell somebody. And so that was part of it. And yes, there was definitely a part saying that, look, you're, the rap on me is that I gave you bad advice in the 1990s. I think in the context of, of the full what I was saying, which is only invest in these stocks, the internet stocks, in the context of a, a very diversified portfolio and limit your exposure, which is what I did personally, I think this that overall was was good advice, but on some specific stocks, I'd given lousy advice, and so I wanted to come back and say, okay, here's the good advice. Um, don't speculate. Buy index funds. Hold for the long term. Keep those costs down. Um, and that was part of the driver of that book. Well, with with 2020 hindsight, uh, you know, going back 15, 16, 17 years, and it was such a euphoric time. And uh, you, you talk about the over democratization of investing. There was Carmela Soprano uh, telling Tony, you know, I watch CNBC, Tony, and you know, maybe that should have been like the the shoe shine indicator of <laughs> what what was going to happen. But um, 
with all due respect, why were you an internet expert? I mean, you emerging from this ooze uh, in 1994, 1995 with the Oppenheimer uh, gig. Did you just bone up on what internet companies did? Were you an expert on on cash flow analysis? You weren't a finance major in in college. I mean, and it's it's a lot the same thing with me. You have to kind of duck to not get a job on Wall Street in the late 90s, but they mold all of these these people with uh, writing ability and and a desire to be presenting in front of people into sudden Wall Street experts. Well, I had gone through I, I started when I got out of school, I started as a, a freelance journalist. I wrote a book. I I so I was a journalist for a while and then then in the mid 90s, early 90s actually, I decided to go to work on Wall Street. My dad had been in the finance industry. Wait, so didn't you it, didn't you well teach going. English abroad? I, I read something. I did. The first year I went to Japan and and worked in a high school and and taught English. Then I came back and and wrote a book and was mm. a journalist for a few years freelancing in San Francisco and New York and worked at CNN and and mm. other places. And um I did but I decided by the early 90s that I was going to go into finance. And so I went through a training program at Prudential Securities, typical corporate finance program, MBA accounting and, and financial analysis and spreadsheet analysis and, and all that stuff. So I had a good background in that, and I actually did that for two years or so before I became an analyst. And basically what happened with the Internet was you had this new industry that emerged incredibly quickly with the IPO of Netscape and all the other companies that were mobilizing around it. And that created 30 empty chairs in Wall Street research departments where they needed an internet analyst. And so that was an opportunity for me. I'd worked on a few financings of companies that were doing things around the internet. So I had an advantage in terms of understanding it. And um, ultimately that proved to be a perfect match for my journalism experience and banking experience. It was a combination of both. And so so being an analyst was a very good slot. And the industry was moving so fast in those days. It's still moving very fast 20 years later, but it was moving so fast in those days that you really had a big advantage by only having a year or two of experience in the sector relative to everybody else. And nobody knew for sure where it was going. We were all looking into the future and drawing analogies with past media and communications platforms. So uh, ultimately, it was an environment where people who were smart and could look at it objectively could add value. And, and that's what we were trying to do as analysts. Was there a part of you, and I, I would love to unpack kind of the, the courtship from, uh, was it Oppenheimer to Merrill Lynch, where suddenly the big time is calling you up. Uh, you have people like Mary Meeker out there who are bona fide rock stars. There's this rare wrinkle in time where the uh, the the analytical, uh, you know, the analyst side, the sell side analyst side is rock star. Is not just looked at as a cost center. Is is wooed and wined and dined and the imprimatur, the public face of the bank, almost daily on CNBC. What was it like when Merrill Lynch came knocking after your landmark uh, Amazon prediction at the end of 1998? Well, that's right. I mean, what you described is totally what happened with analysts, and it really was a an unusual period of time. The job of securities analyst has never been a particularly high-profile job, and for a brief period, really five years, it mm. became this incredibly high-profile job. And companies would select a bank to work with on the strength of the analyst and um, so analysts for that period and then obviously with with so how were you how were you courted I mean this typically happens with rainmakers or big bankers or the merchant bank people Merrill how did Merrill come knocking walk us through that 
Well, I, Merrill, basically what would happen in those days is that an analyst would leave a firm and they would have to hire another analyst. And that happened several times while I was an analyst. And um, Merrill talked to several analysts. And fortunately for me, they decided they liked me and offered me a job. And that was great. I was very excited. Was it a, was it a name your own price proposition? Were you still, I mean, you were not exactly toiling in anonymity. I remember you with that headset. Um, I, I don't know if, I don't think there was Skype or anything back then, but you were doing like a webcam interview. You were so in demand that CNBC or CNN FN patched you in. Did these guys suddenly, was there a feeling that you were being recruited to the big leagues and there would be uh, accompanying that a huge pay package? Well, there was definitely a feeling of I had been working as an analyst for a few years and, as you say, in a relative quiet of dealing with institutional clients, mutual funds and hedge funds and talking to them and doing my job. And then you mentioned the Amazon call, which it, it certainly raised a couple of eyebrows with some of my institutional clients, but it wasn't a big deal. They would call up and say, well, okay, uh, the Amazon's skeptical, so what are you thinking here? You really think it can get there? Why? How do you, how do you think so? But out in... The the world of individual investors and financial television, it was it was treated as though it was just this mind-boggling prediction. It wasn't at the time. This was a $240 stock saying it was going to go to $400 wasn't um, a particularly wild prediction. Well, that's kind of pre-split, pre-split. Just for context now, the entire Amazon.com, which is which is you know household name now, not just selling books and DVDs and CDs, is worth, did I see correctly, $265 billion on the market? Yeah, it's a the stock itself is now at 550, and the the split adjusted stock price for that 400 is 67 dollars. Mm. So so that one worked out. Many others did not, but that one worked out. Did you but, have any idea back then that this was like an incipient Walmart killer or Walmart harasser? I've always wanted to ask you. I, there's no way you can kind of look into this crystal ball and say you could parlay this dominance in books and and media into. Gosh, shoes, diapers, uh, uh, cloud storage. I mean, gosh, what do they not do now? I thought it could be a very big and successful company, and it certainly seemed possible that they would go well beyond books into other categories. What Amazon had that few other companies had is Jeff Bezos is just an incredible genius and incredibly passionate and ambitious, and he had a great team around him. And usually in an environment like that, when you meet a team that is that ambitious and that talented, you feel good saying, okay, I, I don't see the future for sure, but I see that they've already identified something that is growing incredibly fast, that people love, they have the right values. I'm going to bet on this team effectively. And, and that very much worked. To say that you absolutely foresee the future, it would be crazy. And, when we, and to give you an example, I, I thought Yahoo was in an incredible position in the 1990s. And that was a company that I had a, a good investment in. And I thought they would absolutely go through the dot-com bust and then come out the other side and go on to incredibly great things. And it turned out that in that case, Google had the right model. Yahoo was initially in the search business, and then they decided to go off into some other business, and they lost focus, and the mm. company cratered, and Google became the huge one. And so you never know for sure, but I think all you can do as an investor in an emerging industry like this, which is necessarily speculative, is to find a team that you think is a great team and a good early plan, and then try not to pay too much for it. Does Jeff Bezos himself have some sort of reality distortion force field like uh, Steve Jobs. I was struck. You got him on the stage at your conference in December of 2014. And this guy does not talk to the press all that much, much less for an entire hour, 
right? And he's telling you all these things that he never talks about, like the stock price, like uh, essentially saying, you know what? We only want this kind of investor. If you believe me, you believe me. If you don't believe me, you don't believe me. Or he's explaining why he bought the Washington Post. And ultimately, when I step back from all of it, um, it, it's not the granularity of the genius that strikes me, but it's almost like this confidence. There's almost like this manifest destiny to the guy. And I can, I'm thinking to myself, what was it like when you first met him? We know he doesn't suffer fools. You're a young internet analyst. You got the call really right at Oppenheimer, and you get moved up to Merrill. How did he size you up at first? I, I don't know how he sized me up. We talked at a few analyst days, but I was one of 30 analysts at that point. And at every analyst day, you also have actual money managers who have big investments in the company. So mm. I was just one of many faces to him. Um, I think it actually became more salient for Amazon later when an analyst, very high-profile analyst, made a big prediction that Amazon was going to go bankrupt mm. in 1999. And I countered that and took the other side. And so we were actually dueling spreadsheets for a period of six to 12 months. And Jeff told me later that that was actually a very challenging time internally, because every time the analysts would say they were going to go bankrupt, a lot of their vendors would suddenly say, should we be giving product to this company? They might go bankrupt. It's just a very, those things have a way of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so Henry, you took off your white glove and went up to this other analyst and slapped him across the face and challenged him <laughs> to a duel. He's insulted I, Jeff Bezos in Seattle. I ran the numbers and I didn't think that his conclusions about the future were right for Amazon. And we, you know, we did a lot of work looking at it, didn't see it, but certainly the stock got crushed, but ultimately it ended up coming back. Fortunately, it didn't go bankrupt. So that's good. Jeff's huge advantage, in addition to being just incredibly smart, is he is not ever run the company for short-term investors or short-term gain. And, and one of the big things that hurts American companies these days is that managements are incented to manage the stock price every day, every week, every month, keep it as high as possible. And the, and the problem is that if you're, if you're doing that, if that's your goal, what you do is you cut long-term investments and you try to maximize profitability in the current quarter. And the problem is that that just severely limits how aggressive you can be in going after bigger opportunities. And what Amazon has done again and again, and we should celebrate it as a country, is made huge investments, some of which have worked very well, like the commerce business and like their web right. services business, which is huge. And then the and fire some phone. Of which, <laughs> exactly. Some of which have been complete flops. And, and what Jeff would tell you is you have to be willing to do that in order to have some of the bets work out. And that is an attitude that in a typical corporation with the Fire Phone flop, the CEO would be canned, the board would be apologizing and groveling and trying to cover itself. But Henry, there was management. a tipping point that earned that. I always thought that that was kind of a circular thing. It's not like he went out and minted tens of billions in profit. He showed that, that there's like a viral element, that things like Prime that were wild-ass guesses and really speculative things up front really signed up lots of customers. We've seen enormous holiday numbers over the last five, seven years. We've seen millennials. We've seen, we've seen reports of college uh, uh, post offices being inundated with Amazon packages. This is the way millennials buy things. So I always got the impression that Wall Street writ large, institutional investors, sell-side analysts, everybody's kind of buying this story on faith, that at some point he's going to harvest the profits, but not quite yet. Well, you're right. Some are buying it on faith, and then some are still short-term. And look at what happened with the Fire Phone, where they came out with it, there was a little bit of excitement, then it didn't sell well, and the stock got cut in half. And now the stock is double 
what it fell to. And that kind of volatility is utterly frightening for most managers. They feel that their personal performance is being judged. Boards hate it. They go everywhere. Their friends harass them for the stock being down. And what it unfortunately creates is this culture where you try to minimize risk and maximize current profits and ultimately hurt the long-term value of the company. And I, I think the other big lesson that Amazon has shown that we can all learn from as, as again, company managers is that you don't have to show profitability to have an incredibly high stock price. Mm. Amazon smart investors look at it. They can analyze the profitability of the core business. They see what Amazon is investing in speculative businesses, and they say, look, the speculative businesses don't work. They'll stop investing in them. They don't just burn money for the sake of burning money. And the core business is probably nicely profitable, and so we will put a value on that. And ultimately, that's the point. We have the rest of our economy is just fiercely trying to maximize profit and ROI in the current period, and we are shortchanging our customers and our long-term value by not investing enough in the future, and Amazon's been able to do that. Full disclosure, we're talking to Henry Blodgett, American businessman, uh, venture capitalist investor, journalist, author, uh, repentant family man. Uh, I, I don't know what else. <laughs> and to... I should say, if you're in the disclosure mode, I own Amazon, so I don't mean to be. I'm well, not he also stock, he but... also owns a chunk of you, and tell us how that worked. He does. Out. I mean, there was almost like a reunion tour when you were in that wilderness phase. You crossed paths again with Jeff Bezos and Kevin Ryan, who was, I, I believe, the founder of DoubleClick, which did very well as an IPO company. How did you guys cross paths again? How did these guys uh, treat you in your, in your period of exile? I'm really curious about those years in the middle part of the last decade. Well, I, so after I left Wall Street, I started writing again. I published the book that you mentioned earlier and was basically freelancing as a journalist and doing some consulting on the side. And I also started a blog called Internet Outsider, which was my first introduction to digital media other than beyond Slate. And uh, at 2007, a friend of mine, Kevin Ryan, you just mentioned, who I had known over the years and known at DoubleClick, called up and said, look, I'm thinking of starting a publication, tech publication focused on New York. What do you think about that? And um, I came in and talked to him. I was I had always been interested in in creating a company that sounded great to me and exciting, and it just seemed like a perfect match of both the writing side and the business side. And so uh, we decided to do it together, and we co-founded the company with uh, with Dwight Merriman, who was also at DoubleClick, and that's when Silicon Alley Insider started. And I think, in terms of Kevin, we we had known each other. I I had never had any problem during that period with folks that I had known for a long time, the reputational damage was primarily uh, with the public, and it was obviously very mm. severe. Um, so I had a lot of trust to earn back there. But um, we so we started, and, and we didn't know it was going to work, and we all invested a little bit for the first year, and we worked and worked and tried to make it self-sustaining, and then we raised money from there, and, and fortunately, it's been uh, been very successful over many years. Well, clearly, you're one of the few exits of kind of uh, you know online digital native blogging. If you think about Vox, if you think about some of the other players, I know HuffPo sold out to AOL. Um, there have been uh, many people who've been taking huge up rounds, but very few outright exits the way you guys just exited. And I want to know, going back to your initial investment, uh, when you guys huddled you know, with Kevin Ryan and, and everyone else, what was this a play on? Was it on online advertising? Because we always thought that those numbers were very ephemeral. This stuff was going away. The world was switching to mobile. I mean, what was your initial investment? I mean, you could say broadly, thematically, that the, the world is 
really looking for uh, uh, smart, concise takes on all the news. It's like sipping from a fire hydrant every day. But I never understood what the underlying economics of this were. We recently had Michael Wolf on the show, um, columnist for USA Today, media columnist, and he doesn't get it either at this point. It's just people convincing other investors that it's worth something. Right. I, I think the the theory was that this is a big new medium and if you look back at the history of other media, what you find is that journalism organizations start up and what they first try to do is take the formats of other media and apply them directly to the new medium. In early days of television journalism, folks would get up in front of the camera and read a newspaper. Then relatively quickly, people figured out, hey, pictures are worth a thousand words. We can do a lot of things with TV cameras that we can't do in a newspaper. And then over the next 75 years, an incredibly rich new form of journalism evolved that is very different from print, but wildly more influential and powerful and so forth. And so our theory was digital will evolve its own storytelling and distribution formats and its own economic model. And we didn't know what those would be, but we didn't come in and say, okay, we want to try to stuff a newspaper in here. or We want to try to stuff a TV network in. We looked around at others who were doing things that were digitally innovative, like Matt Drudge, like Huffington Post, like Gawker Media. None of them looked anything like a traditional mm -hmm. publication, and yet they were all succeeding. And so we tried to learn from that, and we experimented heavily and over the years, we had lots of ideas that didn't work. Fortunately, some of the ideas did work, and every time we found something that did work in terms of readers liked it, it made sense, uh, we would double down on it. And so that's the way we've built it. In terms of the model, the uh, we didn't go in saying it's going to be advertising supported. We went in saying we will figure out a model, and ultimately advertising was the first one that we developed. We're now developing a subscription business that will be very important over the long haul. I don't think that it makes sense, especially for a business publication, to be just advertising supported. But I do think that that Business Insider, BuzzFeed, Vox, and others are demonstrating that when you achieve scale as a publication and you have good technology and a good sales force, that there absolutely is a model that supports the business. And really, it's no different than the early years of cable, where a lot of new cable networks in the late 70s and early 80s were founded, like CNN. Everybody thought it was crazy. No one's going to watch 24-hour news. Why on earth would we ever need that? Five to seven years later, CNN was working. It wasn't very big yet, but it was working. And now, over the last 25 years, it's become this huge global behemoth that we all know that's part of the fabric of, of what we all do every day. And that is what I think will happen with the big digital brands. They're not all going to succeed by any means, but some will come out of this period and then they will grow for decades. And ultimately, our children, these will be the media brands that they are most have a greatest affinity for. But doesn't content want to be free, Henry? Some of it. And one of the boneheaded ideas that that came out, and there were many boneheaded ideas, and I had a lot of them, um, early in, in the days of digital media was that, that you'd never be able to charge for anything, and it all had to be free. And that has just proven to be insane. And in fact, the most financially successful media businesses right now, like Bloomberg, are 
pretty much 100% subscription. And Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, many other big publications now have nice subscription models. Cable networks, for the most part, have two models. They have advertising and affiliate fees. So the idea of having a dual revenue stream business is actually very standard in media. We're very excited to go after it. And yes, it turns out that, that for a lot of media, the, the freemium model is the way to go. Some of it's free and some of it's paid. It strikes me that your career since graduating from Yale has been kind of this, this vision quest to find a way to get paid for your content. I mean, maybe you would have pivoted into some sort of journalism position full time if it didn't strike you as being, you know, is it, is it worth my while? I mean, I... I spent all this time getting this undergraduate degree? Do I want to be a fact checker? Do I want to uh, go through the rounds uh, maybe so that somebody offers me a job as a staff writer at Harper's in five or six years? You pivoted and went in a different direction. You found a way to get paid for your content on Wall Street effectively, but it was a cross subsidy. And I wonder if a lot of that still holds. I mean, almost 20 years later is we're hoping for venture capitalists to buy these companies out or for the likes of Comcast to take stakes in them and to have a venture up round. But in the end, there's precious little evidence that people out there are willing to pay for good content. Like use the example of Bloomberg. Bloomberg's consumer-facing media operations have lost money for time immemorial. Yes, people pay $25,000 a year for the terminal, but there's no evidence that they're looking to pay for um, specialized content that's being offered on the web. Well, it, it, absolutely there's evidence. If you look at the Financial Times, the com paper's completely reinvented itself as a digital publication now, and it's driven by subscriptions. And it's the same thing with the New York Times. I can't tell you how many pundits were on their high horses saying, oh, the New York Times paywalls are the dumbest idea ever. they got to be free. They don't get it. That has saved that organization. Yeah, and, but if they were to stop right now, if they were to go digital native like you, I mean, they must envy you for exiting like this because they can't. They no, are. If they, they were are, to stop right now, so let's say right now the New York Times had to close the newspaper tomorrow, what they would be left with is a digital media business with $400 million of revenue and a newsroom that is spending about $200 million a year, maybe even more, depending on how they do it. If they can grow that digital revenue, and that's an if, that will ultimately support their current newsroom. So um, I don't. I think that's going to be challenging. I think they will have to trim the size of the newsroom. But let's say that all they can afford is 800 incredible New York Times journalists on their 400 million of revenue. Wow, that is an incredibly powerful digital media organization that mm. is self-sustaining um, and that people are happily paying for. And I think you're going to see the same thing over the years. And, and also, if you look at BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed's re advertising revenue has grown at an absolutely phenomenal rate. And they now should do about $250 million of revenue this year. That's a significant business. And it will, it will continue, if everything goes well, to grow. And ultimately, they should get to the scale that a, one of today's cable networks w would be proud of. And I, I think the mistake that people make is they look at businesses at a, at a very early stage, and they don't extrapolate over what could happen over the next 10 to 20 years. And again, I would just offer CNN as, a, as an example of that. In the, in the mid-80s, you would never have predicted CNN would become what it has become, and but now it's understood. And and so, I don't. I can say for us, we are not looking to exit 
to a buyer and have that be the end. We want to create a stable of brands that my children grow up and think of the same way that I grew up thinking of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal that create newsrooms of thousands of people around the world who are incredibly proud to be there and creating this this entity and service that millions of people around the world use every day. That's what we want to create. Now, Henry, you covered Yahoo! You know, you know the example of this, the cautionary tale. This was a $140 billion enterprise at the turn of the century, that this was going to be the next big portal, that every last bit of great content was going to go through this. They had a chance to buy eBay. Yahoo is is still out there fighting, but it's not nearly as big as some of the other players that came in out of left field, like Google, like Facebook. How can you then say, looking ahead in 15 years, when, when so many things change, uh, we're we're placing our bets as kind of being the next big media properties right now. This is such a, a, a hard to grasp sector. Well, there, there's certainly risk. You can't ever talk about the future without having risk involved. So I'm not suggesting that. But I I think if you step back and you look at what we can be pretty much certain about, we can be pretty much certain that in 10 to 20 years. Interested people, which is most of us, are going to want a steady flow of what is happening in the world and what does it mean. So we are probably going to have a demand for news and media and information. And with smartphones in the hands of five to seven billion people, then it's easy to imagine that the demand for news and information is likely to be far greater than it is today, especially when they become portable televisions and mm. and everything else. So. I, I think we can be pretty much certain of that. Then the question is, who is going to create that content? What is the form of storytelling? What is the model that is going to work? And and what I would say thus far, based on our experience and the experience of other digital companies, is digital is as different from print and television as print and television are from each other. Mm -hmm. It is just a profoundly different medium. And the idea that a newspaper company is automatically going to be great at it is crazy. So... The companies that have the advantage should be those that just do digital. It's what they're about. Two, I think we can look around and say advertising is growing nicely. There are some companies that are successful on it, and we don't know exactly what the units are going to look like. Maybe native is going to work. Maybe programmatic will work. But advertising in general is likely to continue to grow, especially as print media die and television comes under pressure. And... We see many subscription models that work because people are willing to pay for content that they like. And I think you put those together and you can be pretty certain that there are going to be media companies that do well over 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. And can we confidently identify which ones? Absolutely not, because you don't things change. And, and as you point out, Yahoo made a strategic mistake that killed it. They ignored search and ultimately that led to the demise of the company. But I do think that this product, media, news, and information, has been with us now for hundreds of years. We know it is going to be with us in 25 years. It's just a question of which companies are going to provide it and how they're going to pay for it. And I think we're well along the way to figuring that out. Henry, what's happening to TV? We've seen some troubling reports through the summer. I mean, even Disney came out and said that maybe ESPN is not as hale as we thought it was. Uh, the, the, the reports of the cord cutter's ascension maybe have been underrated, that it's actually happening. Um, when I speak to journalism school classes, freshmen, sophomores, at least 80% of them say that they don't have TVs, that if anything, they, they Netflix and chill or watch something on their smartphones. 
What's happened in television is that we are in the middle of a generational shift to digital media consumption. If you look at the media consumption habits of 16 to 24 year olds and compare them to say 50 to 75 year olds, it's profoundly different. People my age and older who grew up reading newspapers and watching television still, some of us, not me, read newspapers and watch television. I still watch sports on TV, but I don't, I've tried to read newspapers and it's just, I can't break the smartphone habit. But you go to 16 to 24 year olds, 70% of the media they consume is consumed on a smartphone or a computer and 50% is on a smartphone. And as those folks get older and they become the mass market, um, ultimately media habits are going to change in a very profound way. And TV is likely to be victimized by that. Importantly, however, what is not happening to television is that people are still consuming video stories. And in fact, with the advent of Netflix and the serials that are being published, we are consuming way more great video stories than we ever were before. They're just not being packaged and consumed in the traditional TV format, which is the network. And so over the next 10 years, I think TV as an industry will come under the same kind of pressure that newspapers have come under over the last 10 to 15 years, where it's not going to die by any means, but it is just going to simply get harder and harder to not just grow, but survive in the current television distribution business, the network business and, and the actual pipe distribution business. That said, companies like Netflix have figured out the new TV network for the future, and it's available on all screens, anytime, whenever you want it. Um, and there will be more of those that are created, and there will be, we are in a golden age right now for television content producers because mm -hmm. there are so many new platforms and distributors that are competing to be the distributor for television in the future. So those of us who like to make and consume great television content have wonderful years in store for us. Um, and Vice is a very good example of that. Vice is a company that seven, year, seven years ago was a small magazine company and is now a large global television producer. Sure. You know, and adjacently, I'm a huge fan of a fellow Miami guy, Sam Rega. He was with Tour. He did some work for them earlier. And I love some of the videos that he does for Business Insider, like the secrets to cooking the perfect burger in your kitchen, or here's how much sex you should be having as you get older. Uh, walk me through what the return on investment on one of these projects is like. How, how do the economics work? You put a video like that together. I imagine it's fairly labor intensive. It gets significant clickage on the Twitters or Facebook, and it, it more than pays for itself or the, 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 the full freight of bringing a, you know, production talent like Sam Reg on board. Well, Sam is great, and thank you for noticing. Uh, and he's made several different kinds of videos for us. Basically, the first type of video that we started to make is what you just described, short form, distributed on, on the web and on Facebook and Twitter and, and elsewhere. Recently, we've gone into longer, longer form, form do yeah. docu documentary production. Sam spent mm -hmm. a couple of months embedded with one of the top professional League of Legends teams this summer and followed them all the way through the finals of the season in Madison Square Garden and produced an incredible documentary about it. So that's an hour-long story. Like, freeze that for a minute. Is that is that like the Jeff Bezos type, we want to invest in lots of things, even if they don't pay off immediately? There are other people out there. You know, when I met Kevin Ryan, he says that we run a lean operation here at Business Insider. We are very cheap with our real estate, with the amount of space that each journalist takes up. Can you afford to have journalists out there doing longer-term projects? Is there an immediate payoff to something like this? Not immediate. We have to pick our spots. 
There's no question. Um, and we have to be very careful about how much we invest in it. But the initial training for Silicon Alley Insider, when Silicon Alley Insider was three of us in the loading dock of another startup trying to figure out how to survive, actually was incredibly helpful when it came later to our knowing how to do what we do and how to make it work. And if we had just immediately hired 50 people, we would have gone bankrupt immediately because we didn't know what we were doing. So figuring it out at a relatively small scale is critical to long-term success. So the longer form documentaries that we've been doing are part of the initial first steps into longer form video production. And yes, we, we, they're speculative. Uh, we hope they work. We're incredibly pr proud of the results so far. But the most important thing is that we learn from every experiment and we try to get better the next time. And that's been the philosophy of the company from day one. And it's gotten us where we are. And hopefully it'll get us a lot farther. Talk to me about Joe uh, Weisenthal. This is a guy who you kind of sicked on the entire journalism industry. He doesn't sleep. There was a New York Magazine profile about him. He gets up at three in the morning. What did I miss? What did I miss? And he's, you know, I was at Business Week at the time. He kind of became the standard, the risk-free rate that every finance writer is measured up against. Like, why don't you have this kid's productivity? And I emailed you once. I was like, Henry, that's your revenge against the financial press is that you put this guy in our league now and we're all being measured against him. Uh, Bloomberg wooed him away from Business Insider. And I kind of want to get the sense for what that was like. You guys were still running a lean operation. You can't go out and have bidding wars with the likes of Bloomberg or a big cable network. Uh, at what point does kind of a small but ambitious operation do you say, you know what, we have to go back and invest in the, in the bullpen and the younger uh, Joe Wiesenthal's? Well, one of the things we had to do from the beginning was make the success of Business Insider independent of any one individual. And in the first few years, it was actually me because I had written the blog and had been a relatively productive journalist and I had the analytical background. So I was actually able to do a certain kind of story that other journalists, just because they didn't have the financial training, uh, weren't doing. And so there was a lot of, we, we, our early readers were very focused on that. And I remember people saying to me, oh, it's great. I love it. But the problem is it's just you. So you're dead. And so what we did very early was immediately start to, to help our other editorial teammates really start to build their own profiles. And there were a couple of very key early writers. Peter Kafka is one of them is right. now at Recode and Dan Fromer, who went on to Quartz and, and elsewhere. And they were incredibly important. And I remember when Peter left, the, suddenly the story was, oh, well, you guys were great. That was fun. But now Peter's left, so you're done. And and on the one hand, I said, well, that's good. We succeeded. We got the focus off of me. Um, but now everyone's worried about that. So now we have to show that we can succeed without Peter. And we did that very well. And, and so all along, it's, it's, I, we, we have been incredibly fortunate to have many gifted, innovative digital journalists help us develop as a company. And we could not have done it without them. And Joe was one of those. And Nick Carlson is another one. And, and we have many who, gave, who started very early in their careers. They, they threw their heart and soul into it um, and ultimately have helped us develop into what we are now. But as an organization, you have to get to the point where you can't, you're not dependent on any individual. And, and so Joe had been there a long time and 
Bloomberg offered him a very exciting job as the host of a TV show, which is very exciting for anybody. And he was excited by that. And so my recommendation was do it. That's great. It's not the rest of your life. <laughs> I can't pay you, kid. You got to go. <laughs> well, it's not just about pay. I can pay it's for your subway we card if you stick around. But I... we, don't, we don't run a TV network. And it's fun. TV's fun. And so I actually I encouraged him to do it just for that alone. And yes, they do compensate well at Bloomberg and so forth. Although we, we've been fortunate on, on that side as well, on the stock side. For is us. it true, Henry, that back in the, in, in the infancy of Business Insider, you would break out crisp $20 bills to incent these young people to go and get big headlines? And not headlines, scoops. Yes, we had a scoop jar, um, and we, we wanted to encourage folks to pick up the phone. Oh, I thought you were playing just... liar's poker with $20. No, no, no. Oh, you got no. paid for scoops. Oh, and just $20. take it out, and you'd get lunch. And unfortunately, what happened is a young Nick Carlson, who was a great reporter from day one, would always get his lunch that way, and nobody else was getting them. So we had to withdraw the scoop jar. But it was a good idea for a while. Was that like a Nick Denton of Gawker standard rate, or were you getting like cut-rate scoops at 20 bucks? No, that was. I thought we were very generous. Gawker in the early days was paying ten dollars a post, let alone a scoop. So I thought twenty dollars for a scoop—that's pretty good. Now you could just put out an ad and say, "Come work for Silicon Alley Insider. We can't pay you, but you get exposure, kid. It's good we, for exposure." We paid people, and I have to say now, if you go back four or five years, everyone was whining about and hand wringing about the future of journalism. It's so terrible. The world's going to head in a hell in a handbasket. When what they really meant is newspapers are are getting hit. And you have these thriving digital organizations. And now we're to the point where we pay well. We pay well across media, not just in, in terms of digital. And this has really become a good career. And we now have these incredibly talented folks who come out of journalism school and college and who have been in digital for five to ten years and are totally comfortable with taking pictures and writing fast and taking video and, and producing video. And it's just there's just this incredible new generation of journalists. And, and as you know from working in the medium, this is the richest and most powerful journalistic medium that has ever been invented. It is incredibly flexible. You can tell stories in so many different ways. Um, and it's just going to get better and better. And it's so exciting to see this excited generation that doesn't view it as some sort of second class, oh, I wish that I were in print, but is in fact just thrilled to be in digital. Oh, all of journalism is indeed a second class endeavor for me. I, if I could go back 15, 20 years, I'd open a falafel card. I'd be a millionaire now. No, you uh, wouldn't. But that's neither here nor there, Henry. I'd love to shift you to the markets because this is one thing that I admire about you is you would think that this is a third rail. Don't go out there and you know, you're, you're, you're not allowed to practice on Wall Street or be a financial advisor or broker of any sort anymore. But you, you, you almost touch this third rail of telling people what you're doing with your own money, i.e. A, a post that you put out in the spring, why I've stopped reinvesting dividends. Uh, this is not something that many people out there do is kind of open their personal book of, of finance and, and open that candor to the world. But it's not like you're touting something. It's not like you have a dog in this fight. Uh, you're just telling people that, look, consistent with everything else I was writing in the middle of last decade when I came clean, I'm worried about this market right now. There are a lot of exogenous things propping it up. And um, just in case you're wondering, I'm being cautious on the margin. On the margin, right. I got ridiculed for by both sides. One, for being negative, which people hate, but then two, for not being, well, if you're really negative, you should sell everything. And this is ridiculous that you're just not reinvesting dividends. But yes, that was a token nod to 
a long-term value analysis that makes me think that we are still in an era where stocks are extremely expensive and are likely to perform poorly over the next decade. Doesn't mean they're going to crash. Certainly doesn't mean that people should sell stocks if they have a long-term time horizon because there's nothing else to buy. Bonds are incredibly expensive too, and cash is yielding nothing, and real estate's expensive, so it's not like they're very attractive investments elsewhere. But I don't think that we are going to enjoy a decade of particularly high stock returns. So what is the alternative now? People are kind of bridged. You know, coming out of the financial crisis, on the one hand, you're being told, we shouldn't be profligate anymore. We shouldn't take out liar loans. We should save money. And yet it's become disproportionately painful to save money over the last seven years. Uh, that's right. That's one consequence of the zero interest rate policy, unfortunately, is if you have saved money, it's very hard to earn a return on it. Um, I think that the United States consumers went through a period where we were not saving anything, and we should be saving something. Um, but obviously, if we go into a period where nobody spends anything because you're trying to save every dime, then that's not going to be particularly good for the economy either. But to me, the big issue in the economy that nobody wants to talk about is the fact that we, as a an economic culture, have given all of our power to shareholders, and companies now often exist simply to make shareholders rich as opposed to create value for employees and create value for customers. And I think that we need to rebalance so that companies are paying their employees more. And ultimately, as companies pay their employees more, profits go down initially, but employees have a lot more money to spend and they buy more things in the economy and that creates a lot more revenue for other companies in the economy and then ultimately companies start to grow faster again because we we had a situation 30 years ago where employees in general were getting paid a lot more as a percentage of the national income than they are now and now the pendulum has swung way too far the other way and we need to get back to balance. Yeah, I mean, aren't, aren't you surprised that uh, you're not exactly going to see people with pitchforks in the street? Maybe we were kind of close to it with Occupy Wall Street. But when you have a bailout of the system like this, when you have really nobody arrested and people disproportionately not feeling this bad since the Depression and not seeing gains accrue to them, that uh, the Wall Street firms are recapitalizing left and right, you're seeing enormous dividends, enormous stock buybacks, you're seeing a junk bond, a corporate bond rally, uh, and, and not uh, people kind of at the end of that rope saying, what about me? What about my my paycheck? I think the impression on the street is that there's still so much slack in the labor force that you have not had the, the pendulum of um, kind of uh, leverage swing back to the worker. The worker kind of still has to be grateful for whatever job he has. That's right. And there are a lot of stories that we tell about it that make it seem like it's beyond our control. Manufacturing has gone to Asia and it's terrible. We need to bring good manufacturing jobs back. There is nothing about a manufacturing job that is unique other than the fact that it paid a living wage. And that was because of unions and because of companies like Ford that voluntarily decided to pay their workers more. Fast food companies retailers like Walmart. Which you look at a Costco a or you look at an In-N-Out burger, and these are revered brands that do That's well right. by, their, by their employees. That's right. They pay their employees more. And so it is actually optional. And we could make fast food jobs great jobs with great benefits that pay very well. And ultimately, that would accrue a lot of value to companies. But they might not show as high profits today as a result and, and so forth. And shareholders have now become so short-term focused and managers have been so tied to where the stock price is today 
that we as an economy and culture have lost sight of that. And I think we do need to invest more in our people, the folks who create the value and actually mm-hmm. are the spenders in the economy. And that ultimately will fix the economy. And the thing is, it's going to happen one way or the other. Either it's going to happen because tax rates are going to go way up because people are just going to be sick to death. They won't, they won't take it anymore and they'll make the government impose it. Or it will happen voluntarily. And my hope is that it happens voluntarily. Well, I have you on working conditions and shareholders versus other constituents. Uh, obviously, you kind of almost asked for it. I have to bring you into this morass, the New York Times versus Amazon. Um, you are an Amazon shareholder. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, was an investor and business insider. He did well. Um, you see this really surreal back and forth between the former White House press secretary, who is now the head of PR at Amazon, and the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, and this this hit piece that was done a couple of months ago over working conditions uh, for, for white-collar workers at Amazon, the people saying that they're crying at their desk. What, what is is going on here? Is an Amazon not sufficiently altruistic toward its, its workers? Well, I think a couple things, um, one of which is very good, which is that it, we are no longer in a world where a few media outlets control the story. We're in a world where if a company feels it has been unfairly attacked or a person, you can publish immediately. Yeah, but Henry, the, he waited like six, seven weeks. He's like brooding I, over this, and then he sticks his <laughs> PR person on it. Isn't he giving you a call saying, what, what, what's going on here? No, he's not. But I think it's good. I mean, I think it's good that we, we all have a platform. You can come out and rebut stories and introduce new facts, and it actually keeps journalists honest and fairer, and that's good. Um, and I don't... I'm not up to date. Things are the weaponry is firing so fast and furious that I actually haven't read the latest installments. So I'll I'll demur no. But on as that. a as but, a as a journalist, as a digital native person, I want I, I really want you to comment on this. It's surreal. They took to Medium to do this, right? This is like a proxy war, fought very publicly over Twitter with an immediate response back and forth. You never see this stuff happen. All no, this stuff would happen it's... behind the scenes with suasion and maybe board members and and uh, intermediaries at at Brunswick Group or something like that. That's all gone. I think it's right. And I think it's great. I, I think we might as well have this out in the light of day. And and it's good. And it's good that we both sides can get out there. And the my only comment on the article, I, I have actually not read the Amazon article. I read lots of heard lots of excerpts about it this summer. But um, is the one thing that I would say is that after watching Wall Street and media and other sports and everything else over the last 30 years, I, I have not seen that I can remember a single example of an incredibly successful company or person or team in which there wasn't really hard work and sacrifice involved. And the message that I got, at least from the original Amazon story, is it's hard. You know, it's a very demanding But I had culture. him it's so per- wrong. That laugh is so adorable. He grew up in Miami. <laughs> He's such a nice guy. I met his father in Aspen. And it turns around, he, he like dresses people down. If you read Brad Stone's book and others, this is, a, this is a guy who behind the scenes, he does use fear to a certain extent. It's a performance culture. They're very disciplined. They work incredibly hard. They take a lot of pride in that. And I think you'll find the same thing in the early days at Google and the early days at Facebook, where Mark Zuckerberg was staying up 24 hours a day in his Harvard dorm room. It's just not, unfortunately, in industries like this, when they're developing this quickly, the the amount of time and effort and focus you put in makes a difference. And so I just, my only concern when I hear stories like that is obviously if there are really hellish working conditions, that's something that everybody should be aware of. But I think that 
success in our culture is often defined by hard work and focus. And Amazon has been able to maintain that. And that is why Amazon is the success that it is today. And many, many, many people who work there will say, I got incredible training there. There's just such high standards. We worked really hard and I took that into my next job and that put me in great stead. So no one certainly would advocate mental abuse of employees and the crying at the desk. It sounds terrible. And and I would never want to be involved in a culture like that. I don't know. I can't imagine anybody else would either. But the high level point that when you are on a team that is competing and trying to do something as ambitious as what Amazon is doing, it takes hard work. Just ask the Women's World Cup team. It didn't happen by accident. And I'm sure there were some tempers running high and people getting emotional and being tough in their years of training leading up to that. It's hard to do these I, I don't know, Henry. I'm thinking about Hugh Hefner and his smoking jacket circa 1960. You know, love and be loved and have the cognac go around the, the mansion. Uh, maybe there's still room for that on, on this planet. Maybe so. Or maybe Hugh worked much harder in the early years before he actually bought the mansion. I don't know. Well, uh, having said all that in the few minutes we have left, what's next for you? Um, you have a, a let's, let's call it a liquidity event at this point. Um, you are now known as a journalist. You're an investor. I'm sure your approach for angel investments. Um, you have finally discovered your true Henry Blodgett self, let's say 21, 22 years after you first went to Wall Street. What are we going to see out of you? Well, I, I, first of all, I'm staying. I have a, a big sense of what Business Insider can become, and I really want to continue to make it that. And again, um, for, for our and, listeners, you, you sold to Axel Rose, the front man from Guns N' Roses, right? <laughs> yes, we sold to Axel Springer, uh, the biggest German media company. It was one of the biggest digital publishers in Europe. It's an incredibly forward-thinking media company. They've transformed themselves from a print publisher to a digital publisher over the last 10 years. Very smart management team, want to move into the United States. We think that they can help us become what we want to become. And so I will I will continue to do what I do. Effectively, we have um, exchanged our shareholders for Axel Springer as a shareholder, and so far it's going to great. And we've got, again, as I talked about, the the where we are in the development of the media industry, I really think we're in the first decade for digital, and that ultimately two to three decades down the road is where the real opportunity is. Hmm. Henry Blodgett, uh, in your uh, own words, finally, what else should I be following? What else should I be watching that you think is, is not getting enough coverage? I, you, you're doing a great job. You Keep, keep at it. <laughs> yeah, how am I going to make money off this, Henry? Tell me that while I have you. Well, for that's a, a good minutes. question. While if I, if I came to you I and Kevin and I, I kind of buttonholed you, because I, I did a Jim Chanos interview like a couple months ago. It was getting decent pickup. And then Jay Yarrow, another one of your young Turks, tweets that thing out and it goes international, man. Suddenly you get the, the BI stamp. Um, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Talk to me. Well, you're making, you're telling stories and creating content that people want to consume. That is an excellent start. Now we just need to figure out how to build a business model around it and we can take that offline. Call me. I'll call you, Henry. Then I, listen, I'm going to, uh, you know, I, I saved a minute at the end of the show just for a moment of PDA with you, I really admire what you've pulled off over the last 15 years. I mean, it was very easy for you to just go away in 2003, 2004. Nobody would really recognize you on the street right now. Um, you'd kind of be forgotten about a scandal that was five, ten scandals ago, but you came back, damn it. 
And with a lot of skepticism out there, a lot of vitriol, you earn back your name. And I, I read between the lines and I see it was your father's name as well. And very few people, especially in the limelight, get a chance to pull that off and pull that off as successfully as you did. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. They're very kind. And I feel incredibly fortunate and grateful to everybody who gave me that chance. And there were millions of people. Thank you for finally coming on my show. That was Henry Blodgett, CEO and founder of Business Insider. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are SEO suboptimal, full of eyeballs, slideshow light. Catch us on NPR One and please like us on NPR One. We're also on WRIR Sunday and Wednesday mornings, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. I'm